man, what a week it's been. Uh, as I'm recording this, it is Thursday. It is the Thursday of the week of WWDC 2020. Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference has been going on this week. And of course, this has been an unprecedented one because of the social distancing related to COVID-19. So normally, this is the time when thousands of developers would be descending on San Jose to hear Apple's keynote in person where they deliver all the big announcements about what's going on with the various Apple operating systems. And sometimes there's hardware announcements as well. Um, and then those developers are in sessions and actually having face-to-face -face time with Apple engineers to actually get to talk to them about the issues that they're having developing their apps. Um, and this year was different. This year, it's all remote. We got the keynote on Monday, of course, but in a very different uh, way of doing it. Um, and we got to find out about a lot of really cool stuff, particularly about macOS. macOS and the Macintosh in general really were the star of the show this year. And so we're going to break all that down and just really dive in deep and talk about all the important stuff that was announced this week and what it all means. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsor. Okay, so first let's talk about the, the presentation itself because obviously what we've been used to for the last over 20 years now, and, and, and this really goes back to well before that, but certainly the, the, the era of the modern Apple presentation, the modern Apple keynote, um, you could really say got started when Steve Jobs came back to Apple in the late 90s and really set the format for what we'd see at all these events um, ever since then where you've got... Uh, and of course, in the old days, it was led by Steve Jobs and very heavily led by Steve Jobs. And then in the Tim Cook era, um, it's been more where Tim is 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 sort of the the ringmaster, the MC, and he kind of has a little uh, opening word at the beginning and a closing word at the end. But it's really in the middle, led by Apple senior VPs, and then they have uh, people who work in the various software and hardware areas uh, have a little bit of the presentation and they kind of put all that together. But that's always done on stage. Um, in front of a crowd at these events, and because of COVID-19 and, and you know, and different companies and places and people are handling COVID-19 differently. Some people are pretty comfortable living life pretty much as normal. Um, others are taking much, you know, much more precautions. I'm not here in this podcast to tell you what the right thing is there, but Apple's been on the more uh, um, uh, cautious end of things for sure. And so, you know, they didn't have a live event this time. Um, and so what that led to was Apple putting together this very stylish pre-recorded thing where it started out with Tim Cook kind of standing on the stage in the Steve Jobs Theater, but with an empty theater to kind of do his, you know, opening act uh, of part of the routine. And then it cut over and was mostly driven by Craig Federighi, who's Apple's uh, senior VP of software engineering. He's, he's the main guy over all of Apple's software engineering efforts and all the operating systems. And, and he's just a fantastic presenter. He has done such a good job and gotten just so good at this over the last several years. Um, that, of course, it was natural for him to be the one to kind of lead this thing. And, of course, they peppered that in with um, you had, you know, individual project managers and people who were over different areas uh, doing their little part, but but really kind of Craig being the, the, the main one. And then, of course, closed out by Tim at the end. But the presentation and the production values were, were very good. I have to think that it must have been a relief for all of the presenters to – uh, not have to get on stage and deal with the nerves of being in front of a live crowd. Uh, also, not having to deal with uh, the potential of a uh, demo glitch, which sometimes happens where something doesn't work quite right in the moment. Um, and I'm sure they were able to do as many takes as they needed to and 
and uh, and I'm sure that was a much more comforting environment to do it in. So, and it was so good. I think in general people really liked it. And um, of course, I love the old format as well. But this was a cool, refreshing kind of change of pace. And I wonder if uh, I think it, it's pretty likely that that um, we're going to see Apple continue to stay pretty cautious with COVID-19. So I would imagine that the fall iPhone event will also be done kind of in this manner. And it wouldn't surprise me to see um, Apple do more of these in the future, even when we get beyond COVID. I think, you know, WWDC has always been a live and in-person event. So it'll be interesting to see if they go back to that format or if they have found that it works sufficiently. And maybe there's even some benefits to doing it remotely in the way that they did. Uh, we'll have to see what the developer reaction is to that, especially you know, how well or not well were they able to, to get that sort of one-on-one -on -one time with engineers. It's definitely harder to do that where you, you don't have the serendipity of running into people in the hall, other developers and things like that. So be curious to see how they handled that going forward. But um, I have to think that, that they certainly appreciated a lot about uh, the way this, this, this came, came about. Um, but um, a lot of cool stuff. I'm going to jump into the Mac first. It was the last thing that they talked about, but uh it was definitely the part of the show that got the most attention. So again, the Worldwide Developers Conference, or WWDC, takes place every summer. It's usually in June. It's usually earlier in June, toward the first half of the month. Um, but this year it was a little later in the month. And it's where Apple, uh, the primary focus of it, it, of the keynote in particular, is to lay out to developers, but also to the public. It's, this is really a more... Um, uh, a presentation that's done where kind of everybody can get what's going on. They're definitely not going over low-level code type stuff or APIs or SDKs. They're not they're not getting into the weeds of developer and really tech-heavy stuff. So this is definitely a presentation made for everybody to be able to uh, to come to it and watch it and enjoy it and get a good sense of what new features are coming to Mac OS, iOS, iPad OS, TVOS, and Watch OS in the fall. Um, and uh, sometimes you do get hardware announcements at WWDC, either on stage or maybe they have them, they announce them on the website at the same time. Um, but it's more often a software focused event. And we didn't get any hardware announcements um, this year with, with one kind of s small exception that we'll talk about. We definitely got the promise of more hardware announcements to come and some exciting ones as well for the Mac in particular. But, um, you know, the first thing, uh, let me talk about this. The first thing that they announced was the thing that we all knew they were going to announce, or at least it would have been heavily rumored, and not just this year, but this is something that had been talked about for the last couple of years, which was that this would be the year that Apple announced that they were transitioning away from Intel processors in their Macintosh computers and over to uh, ARM processors, which are uh, basically ARM is a different processor architecture, so software has to be compiled differently for the different processor architecture out there. Um, and ARM is the processor architecture that Apple has used for the last decade plus and all of its other devices, starting with the iPhone, but then the iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, etc. All the other Apple hardware devices run on these ARM processors that are actually designed in-house by Apple. Apple doesn't manufacture them. They, 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 they contract that out to a company, but they do all the in-house uh, design themselves. And um, so, but they had, the, you know, the Mac for the last 15 years has, has run on Intel chips before that PowerPC and, and, you know, and you go even farther back that, that was, there was a, there was a processor line before that even, but um, in recent memory, it's been Intel and, you know, through the Intel period is when Apple saw a lot of the massive growth uh, for the Macintosh 
uh, for sure. So it's been the, the Intel era was very good for the Mac and for Apple. But the, so why are they doing this? Why are they making a big a big change, a big architecture change like this? And what are the ramifications? So the why they're doing this is that there's a couple things. One, I think. Um, there have been at times over the years, especially in the last couple of years, where um, Apple's product roadmap and Intel's product roadmap have not been in, in alignment the way Apple would like it to. Um, and, and so that's maybe led to some friction or, or, or caused them to think, hey, maybe we can do this a different way. Also, Apple has gotten really good at its A-series processors that it designs in-house on the ARM architecture. Um, so good, in fact, that the, the processor in the iPad... Um, is actually more powerful than what you can get in most of the MacBook Pro range, you know, from the MacBook Air all the way up to the, the MacBook Pro. And so it, at some level, it just kind of it, it just kind of makes the most, it, it, it's not only does it make the most sense to switch over to Apple design chips, but it's almost like if you're not doing it, you're almost kind of not giving the Mac its full due. Um, so that was another reason. And, and, and another more fundamental philosophical reason is that Apple um, likes to be in control of as much of its destiny as possible. You know, Apple is right now one of, if not the most valuable companies in the world. It recently hit a market cap of $1.5 trillion, and like a human being can't get their head around what that means. That's an insane, insanely large number. Um, but I certainly remember, because I've been using a Mac for 20 years and been following Apple for longer than that, um, a time when Apple had $4 billion in liquid cash in the bank and was rumored to be maybe an acquisition target. I mean, you know, so Apple has had some, you know, Apple was described as beleaguered. <laughs> Apple has had some lean years. And so they've always had almost like a depression era mindset. You think about those people, your your grandparents, your great grandparents that lived through the depression. And because they experienced that time of great financial uh, hardship, um, they were, you know, they pinched their pennies and, and were, were uh, you know, just, you know, just really had to stretch every dollar as much as it could. And they even kept that mindset years after when they were uh, more, more wealthy and the country was more prosperous. And so Apple, I feel like, has kind of been like that. They've, they've, they've kind of hung on to that. We can't let our, the fate of our company be held on somebody else's hands. And, and the processor is a pretty important, a pretty important hardware component for any computing device. And to have that much of it uh, in the hands of another company... I think was something that they wanted to get away from. Um, so it's interesting. You know, we haven't uh, seen Apple without an Intel uh, processor and a Mac for, again, like I said, 15 years. And they wouldn't make this move if they didn't think that they could deliver processor um, engineering that, that rivals Intel and, and, and can you know, hopefully even surpass it. They certainly believe they can. But they wouldn't be doing this. So that's going to be a big deal. Um, and we, so we all knew this was coming, but the, the devil, the de the devil's in the details, I think is the expression I'm trying to go for, um, where, you know, it's kind of like, okay, we, we know they're going to do it, but what is this going to look like for both developers and end users? And, um, and we got those answers, uh, at least, at least most of them, we got a pretty clear picture of it. And I honestly came away because this is the kind of thing that if Apple got wrong, if Apple were to get that wrong, as far as what they announced at WWDC, and certainly if they are to get it wrong, in the products they deliver. This is the kind of thing that can sink the Mac. Now, I never thought there was much risk of that happening because Apple, again, they know what they're doing. They have proved that with the success they've had over the last 20 years. But, you know, that's the kind of thing that's at stake with this kind of thing. But I came away from their presentation of the transition very, very impressed. Um, so one of the questions leading into it was, how difficult is it going to be for developers to kind of recompile their apps 
um, for the new ARM uh, architecture. What Apple's calling Apple Silicon, they, they, or they say it's Silicon. Um, Apple Silicon um, is what they're calling it right now. I'm sure they'll have uh, a more finished and polished marketing name for it, but they're not ready to release that. So that's what they're calling it for now. Um, but for developers, uh, Apple kind of laid uh, a clear framework for what it's going to look like for them to use Xcode uh, to get their apps ready. And for most apps, it, it made it sound like they could do it in a few days to a couple weeks. And then maybe there's some more work for uh, more advanced uh, or bigger applications. Um, they also announced that if you have an ARM Mac, you're going to be able to run Mac apps that were written for the Intel processor. So even apps that, ha that developers uh, have abandoned or just haven't gotten around to updating specifically for the new Apple Silicon processors, um, your Intel Mac apps are still going to run. And, and probably you won't notice a difference. They even showed um, a... Uh, uh, like a like an actual PC game, uh, one of the Tomb Raider games uh, from a recent Tomb Raider game uh, that was written for Intel that had not been recompiled for Apple Silicon at all, uh, running uh, very smoothly on uh, on the new Apple Silicon uh, Mac hardware. Um, they even showed like a, a high-end, um, I don't know if it was a compositing or high-end 3D rendering app, something like that. Again, kind of same thing. It looked like it was running quite well. Uh, on that. So, so that's really encouraging that, you know, because that's the kind of thing you need it to be a transparent experience for users. Users don't need to know that there's any difference between app A that was written for Intel and app B that was written for the new Apple Silicon chips. Um, so that looks like a real win. Um, very cool. So, so, but basically developers are going to be able to create what, what's called a universal binary uh, under the, the, the technology they use is called Universal 2, which is a throwback to Universal, which was from the last processor transition from PowerPC to Intel. They brought back the Universal Word uh, a product name. And that means that you'll, the developers will be able to create a single binary or a single application that can run on either an Intel Mac or an ARM-based Mac. And that's important because Apple said that this fall is going to be when they're going to ship or when they're hoping to ship the first Macs running on Apple Silicon, but that it's going to take up to two years for them to transition the entire Mac line because you've got a lot of products here. You've got various uh, sizes and configurations of MacBook Pro. You've got the MacBook Air. You've got the Mac Mini, the iMac. You've got the Mac Pro. It's possible there's even going to be some other Mac model we haven't even seen, like maybe a return of just the MacBook. We'll see. Um, so you've got all those different models, and it's going to take them some time uh, to get each one to get you know to get the whole line transitioned over. So in the meantime, they said they're still going to be you know between now and even maybe when the first Apple Silicon Mac ship, they're going to be releasing new Intel Macs, and so they're going to be running these side by side going forward. And so you know the nice thing is whether you buy uh, a Mac today running uh, you know running on an Intel processor, Apple is pledging to you know continue developing Intel based Macs for the next little bit, but also continued software support. Uh, for Intel Macs for a long time to come. So if you just bought a Mac, don't worry that it's like suddenly obsolete. Um, you know, I was there the last time around and, and uh, I think I bought a computer in January 2005, a PowerPC-based iMac G5. And then that summer, Apple announces the transition over to to uh, to Intel. And then I, I still had that computer up until I think sometime in 2008. I know it was 2008 when I got my, my next iMac. So you know, you're still going to have support for a good while to come. In fact, today um, on John Gruber's podcast, The Talk Show, he interviewed uh, Greg Joswiak and Craig Federighi, again, two of Apple's, you know, senior people. And Greg Joswiak said that he was putting his money where his mouth is, and he just bought, uh, I think he said his daughter was going off to college, and he just bought 
a 16 inch MacBook Pro for her, of course, running on Intel. So, um, so, so, you know, don't fret if you just bought a Mac, but it's going to be an interesting uh, transition. And they also announced, um, the, uh, what, you know, I talked about how you'll be able to run Macs that were, that are not these universal binaries that were just written for Intel. You'll still be able to run those using a technology called Rosetta 2. And again, they're bringing back that Rosetta name from the last processor transition 15 years ago. So for those of us that have been around Apple and around the Mac for a long time and have kind of seen this before, it was kind of fun to revisit some of those product names. But this the Rosetta technology is what allows the ARM-based Macs to emulate Intel hardware and run those, those apps in a way that should be essentially seamless for most apps. Um, you might have some issues on very high-end software, although, again, Apple demonstrated a pretty high-end piece of software uh, written for Intel but running on the new Apple Silicon processor. So um, that's exciting. You know, again, um, and I'll talk more about this when we talk about the design of macOS, but, you know, you've got – you've just had people for the last few years that have, for some reason, just got it in their minds that Apple doesn't care about the Mac anymore. And I think I know what it is. They're looking at Apple's – you know, revenue and profit pie charts, and they're seeing that, you know, the Mac, which used to be basically all of what Apple was from a revenue and profit standpoint, has shrunk down into a, a tiny sliver of that compared to iPhone, iPad, Apple services, all these other things that are bigger chunks of the pie. And so, and they're, they're, they're worried that, you know, Apple's looking to replace the Mac or they don't care about it. But honestly, to the contrary, Apple has over the last four years in particular shown a very strong commitment to the Mac with regular hardware updates. We just had last year the completely redesigned Mac Pro. Um, and again, Apple this is it, Apple switching to silicon, the Apple silicon away from Intel is again a bet that they care a lot about the Mac and want to make the Mac as great as it can be for the next several years. So um, so that was really exciting to see. And I, I feel like a lot of, you know, of course, I've been uh, an Apple enthusiast for a long time. It's been 20 years since I bought my first Mac. But this has been a nice kind of even reinvigoration for me is to see what Apple's doing with the Mac. And I'll, I'll take this opportunity to jump over and talk about Mac OS from a design standpoint. So we knew about the transition to ARM that had been so heavily rumored. It was one of those where there's smoke, there's fire, and the whole forest fire seemed like it was on fire. So we knew that was coming. Um, what, we, what we didn't really see coming was Apple announced essentially a complete UI overhaul of macOS. Uh, my ears perked up at the beginning of the, the Mac part of the presentation when Craig Federighi said that they have done the biggest, I don't remember exa his exact words, but he said something to the effect of we've just done the biggest redesign of, of macOS since macOS 10. And, and that got my ears perked up because, you know, that was a pretty big deal. It, for, for those that are uh, younger or have come to the Mac in more recent years, it's probably hard to to realize what a big uh, leap forward Mac OS X was, not only from the classic Mac OS, but, but compared to anything else out there on the market from a computer, a personal computer operating system standpoint. It, it looked like nothing else. You had photorealistic icons, you had uh, lots of color and, and transparency and animations, and it was gorgeous. And Steve Jobs talked about how the icons were lickable because they looked like bright candy. I mean, it was... It was, uh, if you were watching that presentation as I was in January of 2000, it was a jaw-dropping, mind-blowing uh, thing. And so, you know, to, 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 to kind of harken back to that level of thing got my attention. And um, honestly, I think he's right. Uh, Mac OS uh, Big Sur. So that was another thing that we didn't know uh, uh, for sure. There was some speculation that Apple was going to change the naming convention in Mac OS. And so 
uh, there was some speculation that they were just going to drop the 10 dot and call it Mac OS 16 because last year's release was 10.15 Catalina. So maybe this year's would just be Mac OS 16. That would be a lot cleaner. Well, they kept the California place names. This one is Big Sur, uh, named after that location in California at the coast. Um, but the thing that was uh, that, that, you know, there, where there was some truth to the, the speculation was that they did change it. It's not Mac OS 16. It's not Mac OS 10.16. They finally went to 11. Mac OS 11 is the name. And I think that they did that. They felt the time was right. A, because of the transition to Apple Silicon is a big change for the Mac in general for, from a hardware and software standpoint. But also, um, again, this complete UI overhaul that I think they felt warranted uh, changing the, the number from, from 10 dot or 16, but to, to 11. So, and it's, you know, if you think back when, when, when Steve Jobs introduced Mac OS 10, I don't know if it was at that very first event, but sometime in the very early time with Mac OS 10, Steve said, Mac OS 10 would take Apple, would, would take the Mac, would carry the Mac for the next two decades. And here we are two decades later and we've got Mac OS 11. So, so that was uh, kind of neat to kind of see that happen. And I don't know if they were thinking about that or not, but, but that's what popped into my mind. But, um, but yeah, Big Sur is, a, is, is a big, uh, design change and you really need to go look at the screenshots on Apple's website because it's not available to download except in developer beta right now. But go look at those screenshots. What you're going to see is a lot more transparency. Again, not the first time. I mean, transparency has been a thing all the way through the history of Mac OS X, but, but more of a focus on transparency in this release. Sidebars uh, go the full uh, length of the window. Um, toolbars are rethought. You know, Apple has been developing what they call SF symbols um, that basically they're, they're little glyphs, little symbols of, of various um, computer iconography. Uh, that that matches with the San Francisco font, which is the new system font, uh, has been the system font uh, for the last uh, couple of releases of Mac OS. And so you can see these little glyphs used in toolbars all throughout. Um, Apple's had a little bit of inconsistency for the last several years with Windows and Mac OS 10, where um, you know some Windows would have a traditional title bar, toolbar separation, others would merge the two. So finally, we've got a consistency in, in Mac OS 11, where we've got the full merge of title bars and toolbars are just kind of all merged together. Um, uh, control center has been brought to the Mac operating system. It's in the menu bar. Now you can click on that and bring down control center. And it looks very much like what you see on iOS. Um, when the, the dock looks much more like the, the, the dock on iPad OS um, icons look a lot more like iOS icons. They're the little round wrecks, the squares with the rounded corners, but they've been allowed to have more depth. Uh, more sh more shadowing, and uh, they have been allowed to have their their elements of the icons kind of break the plane of the the icon. Again, you have to see it, but for example, uh, the Garage Band icon it's it's the little iOS style squircle, uh, but the guitar you know extends beyond the the, the borders of the of the squircle, if you will. Um, so. Uh, still, you know, looking more consistent with the iOS experience, but allowing them to to express themselves a little bit more in the way that Mac icons have always been able to, particularly in the OS X era. Um, the windows look a lot more like uh, maybe the windows on iPad OS. The way I would put it is they look more consistent with iPad OS while still looking and feeling very Mac-like. And so this again, so again, there's been a contingent of Apple enthusiasts who have had this fear that Apple's abandoning the Mac platform over the years. You've had this other fear from another group that says, well, Apple's going to um, completely 
um, merge macOS and, and iOS into one thing or, or replace macOS with iOS. Again, that's not true either. Uh, I, I mean, it possibly if you look far enough into the future, there might be a day where these things blur to the point that they're basically the same. But but Apple is definitely, uh, they have said with their words for the last couple of years that they're not doing that. I mean, it was last year, the year before, that, that Craig Federighi stood on stage at WWDC and, and rhetorically said, so are we planning to merge macOS and iOS? And then behind him on the screen, a giant, it looked like 50 tall letters, the, the, the word no just dropped onto the screen. Um, and Apple reiterated this. If you if you watch again uh, John Gruber's talk show where he interviewed Craig Federighi and Greg Joswiak, they said in no uncertain terms multiple times, no, it doesn't make sense to do that. No, of course we're not doing that. That's not what this is about. The Mac is the Mac. The iPad is the iPad. So really, and it's one of those things, I wrote about this uh, on my blog, and, and you can follow my work there at johnsherrod.net. But um, if you've ever seen that, that uh, image, and it's, it's one of those optical illusion images, and it's where if you look at it one way, you see a rabbit. But if you look at that same image another way, you see a duck. And it's one of those things where uh, if you brought five people to look at it, some of them would see the rabbit and some would see the duck. Or it's, it's like hashtag the dress from a few years ago on social media where it was like, is the dress uh, white and gold or is it blue and black? And people saw different things. Or like the Yanny... Uh, was it Yanny Laurel? Whatever that was, that, that audio sound. Something about the human brain where we latch on to certain aspects of a concept or an image or a sound, and that's what we perceive, and we have to kind of make ourselves see it the other way. So you've got one group of people who looks at all the changes to iPadOS over the last few years, and they say, well, Apple's just trying to make this more Mac-like and maybe replace you know, the iPad with something that's more like a Mac. And then you've got another group who looks at the Mac and says, well, I see all these things that look like iOS kind of thing. So maybe Apple's replacing Mac OS with the iPad OS. And both of these people are looking at it wrong. It, it's, you can, you can, you, whether, you know, depending on your perspective, what you're more used to or more focused on, you're going to see one thing versus the other. But the reality is neither. Apple's not replacing Mac OS with iPad OS or iPad OS with Mac OS. What Apple's doing is they're just trying to be as visually consistent across all their platforms as they can where it makes sense while still letting each platform be each platform. So again, uh, Craig and, and Jaws on the talk show talked about how, you know, we're trying to make the best tablet possible with the iPad and the Mac is still the Mac. It's still got a menu bar. You can still open the terminal. Um, you know, it, you can still uh, download apps from websites, not just from the app store. You can disable system integrity protection if you want to be a hobbyist and tinker under the hood. All these things that make the Mac the Mac are still there, and they're not going anywhere. And again, they just invested uh, millions, if not billions of dollars into this transition from Intel to Apple Silicon to, to enhance the Mac and make it better. Um, so, uh, you know, again, people need to allay those fears. And then I, I also wrote the other day, maybe another way to look at this is that there's a sense in which there already is one Apple operating system that finds its expression in different ways for different device types. And what I kind of harken back to is if you think back to the announcement of the original iPhone in 2007, Steve Jobs actually talked about how under the hood it ran OS X. And I think that's the very one and only time where Apple ever used that way of explaining it. But, but the reality is that uh, Mac OS, Watch OS, TV OS, iPad OS, iOS... Um, under the hood is a lot of shared framework and shared code, um, but they find their expression, especially in function and, and aesthetically, in ways that are uh, specific to those devices. And so they're going to share a lot of similarities where it makes sense, 
and that's good for consumers who can easily move from one device to another, but they're also going to remain um, what they are. You know, the iPhone is going to be the iPhone, and the Mac is going to be the Mac, and they're both going to feel like they were designed by the same company with the same, you know, shared philosophies, but they're also going to be their own thing, and that's going to be the case for years to come. And again, go back all the way to 2010 when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPad, and he talked about how, you know, the metaphor he thought of was that the iPad is this post-PC, by which he meant personal computer device, meaning post-Windows and post-Mac device in, in the traditional sense. Um, and he used the analogy of, you know, back when we were more of an agrarian society, basically all vehicles were trucks um, because they needed, to be, they needed to have a lot of utility and you were working on the farm and that sort of thing. But as we moved to a post-agrarian society and more urbanization and that sort of thing, uh, cars replaced most trucks. But you're always going to have trucks. And trucks are still very popular, even though there's more cars sold than trucks around the world. Um, and that was the analogy, that the iPad was going to maybe become that family sedan where you do most of your computing, but you're going to need a product like the Mac to do the heavy lifting, you know, the kind of precision-based stuff that you could only get with a pointer-first operating system, that sort of thing. So, uh, again, the Mac is in great shape. It's in better shape than ever, I feel like, and, and it's pretty clear that Apple cares a lot about it. And I feel like people who are drawing other conclusions along those lines um, aren't listening, paying close enough attention to Apple, or maybe just aren't watching Apple as closely as, as I do. Um, and that's just, and so, and people are going to, again, sometimes see what they, they want to see or, or sometimes see what they're afraid to see. Uh, sometimes that's another thing too. Another, um, thing that's been a, a topic of speculation for years now is will Apple add a touchscreen to the Mac? And those uh, speculations were flared up again once people saw Mac OS Big Sur, because if you look in the control center, uh, you have these large sliders that certainly look like they're big enough for a finger to adjust them. And there's a little bit more width in between certain uh, things like, uh, like items in the menu bar, for example. And that's led people to say, aha, Apple's about to put a touchscreen on the Mac, at least at some point in the future. And I will concede that that's certainly a possibility and, and... If it is, you can definitely look at those things that people are pointing to and say this was the sign. Um, but I'm still a little skeptical of that because Apple has for years, and even as recently as, as certainly I, I, I found a quote from Craig from two years ago saying the same thing that Steve Jobs said uh, a decade ago, which was that, um, you know, the, the interaction method, you know, touch is great for a device you're holding in your hand, like an iPhone or an iPad, but for, uh, you know, vertical uh, experiences like a laptop screen or an iMac screen, it's not great because it sure it works fine for for a short period, but but then you, you because you're fighting gravity, you get fatigued and and it doesn't it, it very quickly feels uncomfortable, and so Apple's always said our solution to bring multi-touch to the Mac is with the multi-touch trackpad, because you've got this big glass surface and you can pinch and zoom and do multi-finger gestures and all sorts of things, um, and that that ergonomically makes the most sense. And they said very similar things earlier this year about why they brought the magic keyboard with the, with the built-in trackpad to the iPad, because they said, look, more and more people are using their iPads as a laptop replacement or sort of in laptop mode. And we, we've got these great keyboard cases for them. But again, if you're reaching up and having to touch the screen, there's a lot of fatigue involved. And I affirm that because I use my iPad as a laptop um, more than I use it as a tablet. And uh, before the Magic Keyboard with a built-in trackpad, it was a lot of fatigue to reach up and touch the screen. So um, I'm still skeptical of, of the idea that Apple's going to put a touchscreen on the Mac. 
if they do, the biggest reason I can see for doing it is that is is to bring just consistency of user input across all of Apple's devices, um, or, or more of it. But but then you still won't have the same thing because of course you're never going to have a trackpad on an Apple Watch, and you know you have the the Apple Pencil that's only going to work for certain products. So I don't know. Certainly possible that Apple's got plans to put a touch screen a touch a touch screen on the Mac. I'm still skeptical. And and those few things that people are pointing to in, in Big Sur aside, like the big sliders and slightly more spacing between menu bar items, um, if you look at Big Sur, it's still a, a clearly a mouse pointer uh, designed operating system. You know, you're still most most things are not touch targets or mouse pointer targets. The red and yellow and green traffic light window controls, menus in the menu bar, um, they're still designed around the precision of a mouse pointer and i just feel like that's even if i could even see maybe a time where apple adds a touchscreen to the mac and it's only for certain things i don't know but i'm still i'm a skeptic still on apple um bringing a touchscreen to the mac if they do it will be a change of philosophy on how they look at user interaction with computing devices so we'll we'll just i guess wait and see on that but i'm, I'm still skeptical um, a few other things, uh, well, uh, you know, again, this was, last year was, there was a big focus on iPad OS and I feel like it last, the way it's looked the last four years, uh, the odd number of years are big focus on iPad OS and even number of years are more like smaller refinements to the iPad software. And, and we were definitely this year in one of those refinement years. Um, biggest thing that they announced for the iPad was, uh, well, a couple things. One, um, bringing more rich sidebars to apps and, um, that makes a lot of sense because an iPad is a big sheet of glass and it makes a lot of sense to have sidebars. And there's two apps in particular that they highlighted at WWDC, which are the two apps that absolutely needed sidebars the most. And that is music and photos, because in both cases, uh, music and photos are very similar apps in terms of the way that you're organizing media, because you have um, different, um, you have different albums and photos and playlists and music where you want to, be able to see a list of them and jump easily over to them. And you want to be able to drag and drop things, you know, from the main panel into the sidebar, that kind of thing. And so they did it. Um, Apple music was probably the worst of Apple's major apps on iPad OS before this release. And now it's awesome. And I'm really looking forward to spending a lot of time with it. Uh, photos, same deal. That makes a ton of sense to have that there. The other big thing they really focused on was Apple pencil and, Apple Pencil, of course, is is great. Um, if you are if you're somebody who likes to to handwrite out notes, it's great. And if or if you're somebody who's a digital artist, it's a fantastic tool. Um, but they put a lot of focus on handwriting in iPadOS 14, where um, they have data detectors. So, for example, if you write a phone number, you can then tap on that phone number and initiate a call that you just hand wrote out with the pencil. They've got enough machine learning intelligence because of their Apple design processors uh, in these things and, and what they're able to do between the hardware and software, machine learning, that they can interpret even my terrible handwriting as what the words are and as things like phone numbers and addresses that you can then uh, do things with by tapping on them. Um, also, you can select a, a row of text that you hand wrote and move it or highlight it. Um, very cool. They also, you know, of course you can draw freeform stuff shapes, for example, on the screen now, and you can still do that. But they also announced that if you draw a shape like a star, for example, and you draw the little little star and then you and you get to the last part of it, you hold the pencil down for a second and it converts your handwritten star into a, a neat, uh, you know, perfectly 
a line star, if you will, or you know, if you if you draw like sort of a a rough square, it's going to have you know complete right angles and straight lines and that sort of thing. So for those times where you want to have your shapes converted into something a little more professional looking, you can do that really easily. Also, they introduced Scribble, and this this reminds longtime Apple fans remembering the Newton uh, will will your, your, will bring memories back from that because with Scribble you can go into any text field that was designed for typed text. So for example, um, the, the example they used in the keynote was you go to Safari and up in the search bar, you type in a phrase like Apple Store. And you, you or was, no, you don't type it, you write it with in handwriting with the Apple Pencil and it then converts it over to uh, typed text. So, so that's pretty cool. A couple other minor things. Um, if you get a phone call now, this is both for iOS and uh, iPadOS, it no longer takes over the whole screen. It just kind of drops down as a panel at the top of the screen, and you can just answer it or dismiss it there. So that is a big, a big thing. It was always a headache when it took you. You get a, you get one of those robocalls that you get ten times a day, and it takes over your entire iPad display. Well, now it doesn't, so that's fantastic. And also in both iOS 14 and iPadOS 14, when you engage Siri, it no longer takes you out of what you're working on to, into this new interface. It just puts the Siri icon at the bottom of the screen or on iPad in the bottom right corner of the screen and then displays any visual information that it would put with it, like the weather forecast above it. So if you ask Siri about the weather, uh, the little Siri uh, you know, colorful blob will appear in the bottom right corner of the iPad screen and then she'll also visually display like the weather forecast right above that, so that's pretty cool. Also search, again, the rabbit and the duck thing. Um, when you you know right in in the current iPad and I in iPad OS 13, if you swipe down from the middle of the screen, it takes you into again out of your work and into this search UI where you type in and and everything. Well, now when you do that in iPad OS 14, it's a lot more like Spotlight on the Mac, where just the little search box appears on top of what you're working on, and again the UI looks almost identical to Spotlight. So, but that's a big improvement over what we had before. Um, uh, iOS, um, one of the big things with, I, and again, this was, I feel like a softer year for iOS, just more refinement overall, um, messages. And this is true of iPad OS as well, but the messages at, and Mac OS now, because it, it's using, uh, uh, all the features that, that are in iOS for the first time, but the messages app, you can pin your message conversations. You have threading where you can reply to a specific message and it links them with like a little line. You have at mentions, so you can maybe make it so that if you have, if you're in like a, a big conversation with a lot of people communicating, you can make it so you only get notifications if you get mentioned. So that's all very cool, and of course that's all coming to the Mac as well. So those are some nice improvements. Um, the App Store they featured uh, this feature, uh, I believe they called it App Clips, and basically what it is is. Maybe they, the example they used was Parkwiz actually, which is a, a, a parking space reservation system that I've used before um, when I go to some event in downtown Nashville, um, but where you can reserve your spot ahead of time. And so they demoed or they showed like an example of you, you go park in your spot and it has a Parkwiz sign with a little special Apple designed uh, something that looks like a QR code and, and, and look and functionality, but with a slicker Apple design to it. And you scan it with your phone. You just hold it up to it, and it uses NFC like Apple Pay does. And instead of you having to download like the Parkwiz app, which takes a long time, so you got to go search for it and download it and sign into it. Basically, just a little panel pops up at the bottom of the screen, like a, the little card interface, 
and uh, lets you do lets you make your parking space reservation at, right there. So it's almost like you're you're able it, it, you're surfacing enough of the app code to do the very simple basic thing you need to do, and then it goes away without you ever having to download the app. So that's a pretty cool thing if if we start to see widespread adoption of it for sure. Probably the biggest thing that people are going to take away and remember is what they did with the home screen in, in iOS 14. So we've had widgets in iOS for a while. Um, you know, of course, all the Android people see this new announcement and are like, oh, we've had this for a while, but I don't care. I don't care what they have. I want Apple to have the best, best stuff. And if that means somebody else has a great feature, I want Apple to get it and make the best version of it they can. But also, guys, widgets have been around since Apple ripped it off from Confabulator in macOS uh, Tiger in 2005 um, and, and put it in there. So, I mean, made dashboards. So, I mean, you know, widgets have been around and date back even well before that. But um, but widgets, you know, you, you could only have them in the today view in previous versions of iOS, but now you can actually drag them out and put them with your home screen. And so that that's a nice improvement. It's certainly going to change the way we organize our home screens, but the new widgets look great for one thing. So they just, they just really pop again, that kind of lickable to use that Steve Jobs Mac OS 10 icon where they look colorful and vibrant and great. Um, and then the other big thing was we all have the thing with our home screens where we have pages and pages and pages of apps and we probably organized the first couple of screens pretty well, but then we have no idea what's on the sixth screen of apps on our home screen. So Apple has made it now where you can hide. You can. There's a little interface where you can choose to show and hide as many of those like those those screens as you want. And then whenever you get over to the last screen and you swipe one more time, you go into this new app library view, and that does two cool things. There's a search bar at the top, and when you go into it, of course, you can search for an app, but you can also scroll through a list view of all your apps, which is really cool. But then also, what you'll see is it looks a lot like the folders view uh, on iOS, where you can group apps together in folders. Except this has already done it for you for all the apps on your on your iPhone, and it's put them in the categories that they they go together with in the App Store. So um, so that's pretty cool. So you might only choose to have a couple of home screens of icons with some widgets on it, and then you just swipe over and you get this app library view as a way of dealing with all the other apps that you use every now and then, but maybe you use it once a year and don't even think about it. Now it's kind of out of sight, out of mind until you need it. Uh, so that's just a quick overview of iOS. I think we're going to stop it there. Uh, oh, th I will say one thing about watchOS. The, probably the, the feature that people have wanted for the longest time is sleep tracking is now officially in watchOS. Um, there have been some third-party apps that have done it, but they're not quite as... Uh, one of the tricky things with, with third-party apps doing this is is if the app isn't running, it doesn't automatically record your sleep. So having a uh, something like that built into the, the watch is, is a nice thing. And what it'll do is... You set your bedtime and your wake-up time and how many hours of sleep you want to get, and it'll start reminding you and, and going into this mode where it um, it kind of winds down, and it can even do some automation things to uh, launch an audiobook that you like to listen to before bed or, or listen to some soothing music playlist and Apple Music, that kind of thing. And then uh, when you're asleep, the Apple Watch automatically, uh, the display turns off, which is cool because before that, people who kind of use this feature with third-party apps would maybe turn on, I would always turn on um, movie theater mode so that it, A, used less of the battery throughout the night, but B, you wouldn't get into the situation where you accidentally move your wrist and the, the, the watch face comes on and it wakes you up because it's so bright. Uh, so now it does this automatically. When, it, when you're in your sleep hours, uh, the screen automatically turns off. And then in the morning, it's got some sounds and some vibrations to kind of gently 
wake you up at the right time in a kind of smooth way at the at the right time according to your sleep rhythm at least as far as it can interpret that and then in the apple health app it'll show you a graph of of what your sleep was like and i think this is great i definitely don't think it's the kind of thing that's going to scare away third-party developers of sleep apps because it's a pretty basic view of what it shows whereas some of these sleep apps uh, show or at least purport to show more details about the way you slept and graphs it out and that kind of thing and so there's still room for third parties to do that but it's great that we now have an official sleep tracking mode in iOS or watchOS excuse me so uh, all these things are coming this fall is when all these operating systems will ship officially there's developer betas uh, out now if you have access to those most people don't but there will be public betas of all this starting in July so you will be able to get your hands on this pretty soon if you want to take the risk of potential bugs or your device crashing by putting a beta operating system on it you'll be able to do that starting next month if you want so again um, very, very cool stuff for uh, Apple's platforms this year. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Your Apple Update. I'm your host, John Sherrod. I'd love to connect with you on social media. Find me on Twitter at JWSherrod, S-H-E-R-R-O-D. Also, go to johnsherrod.net. That's my blog where I write about Apple. I usually have several pieces out uh, per week. And if you want just a lot more detail, um, that's the place to go to get that. You can also go to yourappleupdate.com. And uh, that's where you can find uh, the list of all the episodes of this podcast. And you can actually tap on links to subscribe to them in whichever uh, app that you want. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, any of these things that's got links for them in there. Also, if you're a fan of the show, if you've gotten this far, I'm going to assume that you've enjoyed listening to it. So if you're a fan of the show, um, consider uh, supporting financially. You can actually use Apple Pay right there on yourappleupdate.com to support the show on a monthly basis as low as 99 cents a month, or there's one for $4.99 or $9.99. And uh, that really uh, helps me get the show done and keep going with it and produce it. And Or maybe you're just a fan of my blog. Uh, you can go over to yourappleupdate.com and support uh, that way there as well. But anyway, that's it for this episode. I'll be back next week for, for more analysis of all this stuff. And who, who knows what will come up in the world of Apple in the meantime. Thanks so much. Bye.